The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we have finished our preliminary thoughts of introduction uh, to the Ten Commandments, and today we begin the exposition of the First Commandment. One of the first things that we learn in Sunday school is to recite the Ten Commandments. Children are very good at learning lists. Uh, you know, I wish that I had the memory that I once had. Uh, I remember that my Sunday school teachers, one in particular, had had us to learn long passages of Scripture. One of the ones that I had to learn was the 51 verses of John chapter 1. Uh, today I'm lucky to remember my phone number. I mean, some of us don't even know our own cell phone number. And, uh, and it, it's hard sometimes even to put in that four-digit code, code rather for your ATM card. You ever have one of those moments when you just can't remember what it is, even though you've used it a thousand times? Children, though, can remember anything, it seems like. Uh, we... We teach our children in church the 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments. Some, like uh, Brenda, learned it backwards. Uh, you can do that. I still get into the Minor Prophets. I've been preaching for how many years? I still get into the Minor Prophets and sometimes get them mixed up, which one comes next. What's well, good that we can have our children learn the Ten Commandments. That used to be a staple in our, in our public schools. I can remember reciting the Ten Commandments all the way up until I was in the seventh grade. They were on the back of the school door, uh, classroom door. We, we went over the Ten Commandments every day. But now, children in our schools don't know what you mean when you say the Ten Commandments, much less be able to recite them. Now, one of the things that I've said in the past couple of messages is that when you, when you say Ten Commandments, that usually you don't have to explain to people what that means. They know what Ten Commandments are, which commandments that you're talking about. At least the older generation does. But I'm afraid that we're reaching a time when people are not going to understand what that reference is any longer. We, we don't teach it to our children. Churches don't do any expositions of the Ten Commandments anymore. We act almost as if they don't exist because they just don't fit in with our lifestyles and what we like to do. We, we learn here, though, in, in reading Scripture, that there's very good reason for us to know these commandments, why they should be learned. In fact, in the first two verses of Exodus 20, this is what we read. And God, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God spoke, and God said, I am the Lord thy God. Now think about that statement for just a moment. I am the Lord thy God. And there we're brought face to face with one of the most important, if not the most important question that we can answer. Is he the Lord our God? Now before you answer that, we, we do need to note that our English King James Version makes it very clear to whom he is speaking. Now I know most people don't like the King James because of the archaic words. 
However, the, the old English pronouns are extremely helpful for us at times to know exactly to whom God is speaking. Now, in modern English, we don't have a way of distinguishing between singular and plural pronouns when you use you and your, but the old English does. For example, we have here in verse 3 of our text, which is the very first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you notice in verse number 2 it says, Thy God. In verse number 3 it says, Thou shalt. Whereas the modern text says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And we have no way of knowing whether that is singular or plural because modern English does not make that distinction. Is God addressing the whole nation of Israel here, or is he more particular about this? Is he addressing the individual? And that is a very important point, because in the Old English, it shows us that God is speaking to the individual. And this pinpoints this, so that he's saying to Brian, or he's saying to John here, or saying to Jorge, you, John, you, Brian, you, Jorge, you shall have no other gods before me. And we must think of the command in that way as all the commands that God has given, that God spoke these these things and He's speaking them directly to you. They are very personal. They are binding on each one of you and you must answer to God for your obedience to them. Now if you look at the second verse again, He says, I am the Lord your God. And there we see the absolute reasonableness of the very first command that God has given. God said, I am the Lord. And in that phrase, we find that He is Jehovah, the self-existent God, the ever-present God. I am says that He has always existed. Now, can you think of what a momentous statement that is, that God says, I am, that is God's self-declaration. I was, I am, I always shall be, which means He always has been, He always will be. And if that is true, then the most unreasonable thing that you could ever do is to have another God before Him. It makes no sense. If God says, I am, then that precludes all other gods. There never can be two self-existent beings. There could never be two or more omnipotent beings. At all points, they would intersect. They would interfere. They would invade each other's space, which is impossible. Oh, it's the same dilemma as the proverbial, what happens when an irresistible force meets an unmovable object. It can't happen. So this statement, if it's true, makes it absolutely reasonable for God to make this demand, a command that should be obeyed. And not to do so puts you in an insane amount of jeopardy. You defy the one who created you, who is in absolute control of your entire life. Now as Romans says, God is the one who is like a potter who sits at a pottery wheel molding the clay. And what God can do is He can make a vessel unto honor, or He can make a vessel to dishonor. He can make a vessel to serve Him. He can make a vessel to destroy as He wants. God is able to do that, and the pottery can't do anything. The clay cannot do anything but submit to the one who made it. And so if you believe that there is a God, it's irrational to put anything before Him. And if you don't believe that there's a God, you're already irrational because, quite frankly, that is stupidity because it makes you God. Everybody, every person seeks a deity to worship. It's built within you to know that there's a God. The psalmist said in the 14th Psalm, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And yet we find that the world is full of fools, isn't it? 
People choose to serve a different God. And the question for you today is, who will you serve? Well, let's begin the exposition of the first commandment by looking at the problem of replacing God in the mind. Now, I know that I'm addressing saved people today mostly, and if not yet saved, I know that you're here most likely because you believe that it is the Christian God, the God of Christians that you think is the true God. You're here uh, because you desire to learn more about Him. And you might even claim that you know this God in some sense. Maybe you're not yet saved, but you know this God in some sense, you think. I doubt very seriously if we have anybody here today who has an image, an idol that you set up at home and you worship that image as your God. That you go home in the evenings and you hold a ceremony in which you burn incense and you use incantations and you pray to some strange deity that you have set up as your God. Now, I know that we live in a very weird society, though, so if I'm assuming too much, I'm sorry. Uh, if you do that, then this message is definitely for you. If you don't do it, then the question is, are these Ten Commandments relative to us today? Are they meaningful for us? Do we really need the Ten Commandments? Do we need to even worry about worshiping other gods? Or, or we might also ask, are, are we in fact functional idolaters that, well, if other gods exist, don't exist, then how could we actually worship any other god? Well, let's consider for just a moment how Israel would have answered those questions uh, by discussing where they had been. God had just brought them out of Egypt. Uh, they lived for over 200 years among people that worshipped many different gods. They worshipped a sun god. They worshipped a god of the river. They worshipped fertility gods. They had weather gods and many, many more. And it's interesting that when God brought the plagues against Egypt uh, at the time of the Exodus, that every one of those plagues attacked the strengths of these many different Egyptian gods. They worshipped the sun, and so God sent darkness. And they worshipped the Nile, and so God turned the Nile River into blood. They worshipped creatures, and so God overran the land with frogs and lice and flies. The Egyptians even worshipped Pharaoh, and what did God do to him? He overthrew Pharaoh, he put him down in the dust, he conquered his armies and drowned them in the sea. And what God did was to give these stunning visualizations, demonstrations, that there is no God like Him. There is no God that exists but Him. Do other gods actually exist? Well, they exist only in the imagination of those who refuse to acknowledge that there is one true God. And the struggle goes on and on and on because of the vain imaginations of men, the vivid imagination of men. Now, if you continue reading the history of Israel, they finally arrive at the borders of Canaan, and there they come first in contact with and confront Amorites in the city of Jericho, who said, who acknowledge, we saw what your God did to the Egyptians, and we saw how your God overthrew all of your enemies in the wilderness. And so they acknowledged that God overthrew all the other gods, and yet what did they do? They continued to worship the same gods that they worshipped before, the same ones that had fallen down in front of Jehovah God. And that continued to be true throughout Israel's struggles with their enemies. And we come to uh, this particular part of the story that I think is very interesting to us, what, what, how that Israel related to false gods and demonstrations that God would give that he was the mighty Jehovah God, the one God above all. 
I think one of the most pointed stories that we can find in the Bible is the one in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. And if you turn there for just a moment, we'll look at it, where God showed just the total ignorance of people and the vain imaginations of men and what they do is they worship their false gods. And, and how, how just foolish it is for someone to put another god in front of the true god. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we have this story. Uh, in, beginning at verse number 1, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon, both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. Now, that is just a remarkable story. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they set it down in front of this idol that they had by the name of Dagon in their temple. And they came back on the next day and they found that this idol had fallen on its face before the Ark as if it was bowing to Jehovah. And you have to think what a stunning visual that that must have been. And what did they do? Well, they just took their idol and they set it back up in its place. Then the next day they came back in the temple and found that the idol was sitting there, but it was only a stump. The hands and the feet of that idol were cut off, or the head and the feet of it, were, or hands rather, were cut off, and those were laying on the threshold of the temple door. So what did they do? Did they say, well, this is no God, we must discard this idol, get rid of that? Did they believe in Jehovah God when they saw the demonstration of what he could do? And the answer to that is no. All they did was to go to another temple and resume their worship of this false god. Now that is a demonstration of the struggle of the depraved human heart, which against all reason resists God to take up worthless gods that are failed remedies that can never help them. Men will not turn away from their false gods. But we read that, and we say, well, that, that, that's not a problem in America. America doesn't have this problem. We don't have other gods. Well, have we actually conquered the problem of the ancients? Do we not have other gods that we put in front of the one true God? We look at these Egyptians, and we look at the Philistines, and we say how ignorant that people would be to worship that statue, that idol, that they know can't possibly be a true God. And the answer to our question, are we different, is no, we're not different. The struggle against idolatry, against worshiping false gods, as one person has said, is the biggest problem that we face in America today. That's because idols are everywhere. Maybe not a statue that you can see, in some cases it is, but maybe not one you can see, but the idols, the statues, the false gods are there in the mind. And what people have done, they have submitted to false gods in preference to the living God. A false god is the product of a fallen mind. Well, what are these false gods that are so pervasive in America today? How is it that we are like these ancient people who worship gods, gods like Baal and Ashdod and Molech? What gods do we worship today? Well, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about that. Let me list some of the types of false worship that are prevalent 
in America today. The first of these is the God of relativism. Let, let me give you another one since these two go together, and that is the God of pluralism. Ligon Duncan explains how relativism and pluralism work together to produce the worship of false gods. What is relativism? Relativism says that there is no absolute truth. That the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. And that shows you how insane is the thinking of the relativist. There is no absolute truth, they say. And then the pluralist comes along and he shakes hands with the relatives and he says, the only way that we can live together in peaceably with one another is to admit that there is no certain truth. And so what you say is okay, it's all right with me, because who am I to impose a standard to say what I think is right? And since there is no absolute truth and no one can impose a standard, the pluralist says, then there must be many, many truths. There must be many that may or may not be truth in one sense of the word. It's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. So what's true for you may not be true for me. So instead of saying there is no absolute truth, another way of saying that, and probably better for them, is to say there is nothing that's false. Nothing is false. Now, are you getting dizzy yet about how they think? Now, this is our argument. Is there a standard of truth? If there is, there, is there, if there is a living, omnipotent God, if there is a creator to which creation attests, his standard must be the standard. Well, here's how relativism and pluralism play out in the arena of human reason, reasoning. If what they think is, uh, say is true, which by definition they don't know if it is, then they say, Christianity is your truth. It doesn't have to be my truth. It's true for me, that is, Christianity is true for me, but it's not necessarily true for you. You may want to believe in Allah, and if you do, that's okay, because that's truth for you. If you believe in any number of multiple gods like the Hindus do, that's all right, because that's truth for you. No absolute truth exists for anyone. That's relativism. And the application of relativism is pluralism. Everyone has his own truth, and yours is as valuable as mine, even though... These may be utterly contradictory. I saw an amazing demonstration, a somewhat amusing demonstration of this a few weeks ago in a YouTube video. This was made about the time that the transgender identity debate was getting started about letting biological males and females use the restrooms of the opposite sex. There was a young man on a college campus who was interviewing students, and this fellow was about five foot six inches, maybe five foot seven inches tall. And he kept asking the same question over and over to students that he would come across as he was walking across the campus. And the question that he asked each of them was, what if I told you that I am a six foot five inch Asian woman? And you'd be amazed at the responses that he got. There was not one student that he interviewed who said, well, you're obviously not a six foot five inch Asian woman. You are a five-foot-six-inch Caucasian man. Instead, do you know what they said? Okay. If that's what you, you think you are, then that's truth for you. That's what you are to you. That's okay. Who am I to say that you're not? Do you see how crazy that is? These are college students that will soon be making our laws. Ones that are teaching our young people, ones who will shape our society, and they have bowed to this false god of relativism, 
which shows that our kids through these years have been slowly indoctrinated with this nonsense. It's been going on for years. Now the transgender identity debate overrules obvious biology that you can choose what you are and the rest of us have to abandon all sense of reason and accept you for what you think that you are. Now it's interesting that psychologists said a long time ago that the desire to change sexes is a mental dysfunction. Now the government goes along with things like this. Uh, The government goes along with it. The LBGTQ agenda goes along with this. They'll say things like this. Don't you dare. Don't you dare inject a chicken with hormones to increase the size of his breast. And these same people say the school should not be allowed to tell you that your eight-year-old child wants to be injected with hormones to change his gender. Now what does all that have to do with religion? What does that have to do with religion? That is our new religion. The same thinking bleeds over into the exercise of religion. On National Prayer Day, there are prayers that go up in the National Cathedral and there is no one who dares mention the name of Jesus Christ. In their prayers, they do not mention the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we don't want to offend all these people who believe in their false gods. Gods that can't be gods. We don't want to offend them, so we can't use the name of Jesus Christ. Christians are affected by relativism and pluralism. Your kids are going to have a hard time holding on to the first commandment in their school. And you know why? Because they're immersed in the culture of this relativism and this pluralism. And their teachers and their classmates are living in a world of false gods. It is so bad that children can't even learn math any longer. They're not graded on the right answers anymore. 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's truth for you, but Susie doesn't see it that way. You can't, you can't impose upon her free expression. So whatever she says, whatever answer she gets must be right too. Do you believe that Christianity is affected by pluralism? Well, here's an interesting little factoid for you. Um, as you know, maybe you don't know this, that Mother Teresa is on the fast track to sainthood. On September the 4th, The plan is that she will be officially canonized as a saint. Now, if I were to ask you, what is a saint? Well, you might be a little bit confused about that at first, because some people don't understand. But at least I I think that you would say that a saint is one who always obeys God. I mean, surely I think you would say that a saint is someone who obeys the Ten Commandments. I mean, that would be fair, wouldn't it? Nobody would say that a saint of God is somebody who doesn't listen to God or obey God. I mean, after all, he is a saint of God. Now, this makes the sainthood of Mother Teresa a very interesting dilemma. I know it's almost blasphemy for anybody to say anything about Mother Teresa. She's not even a saint yet, but it's still blasphemy. Yet, Mother Teresa was no saint. How do I know? Because the very first commandment of God said, I am the Lord, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now hold on just a minute. What what does this mean? No other gods before me. Does it mean that it's all right to have Jehovah God up front and then trailing behind him, it's okay to have a second God and a third God, fourth, fifth, or how many how many that you want? How many do you like? Just be sure of this that Jehovah God is first and then you can add your other gods to him. 
Now that's actually the challenge that our missionaries have in India. We regularly get reports of thousands of people that are saved only to come to find out that what they have done is to add Jesus to their list of gods. And they say, all right, he has to be first. All right, we'll make Jesus God number one and then we'll have all the other gods that follow him. That's not what God means. No other gods actually means no other gods at all. Now, there aren't any other gods, but gods of the imagination. So you can't put imaginary gods after Jesus, because all that does is devalue Jesus. No other gods is what the commandment means. You can't have anything after him. Now, returning to Mother Teresa, she's guilty of breaking, or she was guilty of breaking commandment number one. She fails at the very first one, the one that says, God spoke, God said, I am, God said, I am your God, God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And she took that thundering, exclusive command of the Almighty God, in her human wisdom, she said, that's what God said, but here's what I say. What did she say? Let me give you a quote from an interview. She said, I love all religions but I'm in love with my own, no discussion. That's what we have to prove to them. She went on to say, seeing what I do, they realize that I'm in love with Jesus. And so she was asked, and they should love Jesus too? And she said, naturally, if they want peace, if they want joy, let them find Jesus. Now listen, if people become better Hindus, and better Muslims, and better Buddhists by our acts of love, then there's something growing there. They come closer and closer to God. Pope Benedict XVI said, There are as many ways to God as there are men and women. I don't think that requires an explanation. False gods, they say, are a way to God. And so it's okay to have your false gods as long as Jesus is at the top of the list. That is a violation of the first commandment. Is a person, a person who defies God, is that person who defies Him at the very first commandment, is that person a saint? Well, there are many other isms. Pluralism, relativism, not just those. You have the gods of agnosticism, of pantheism, of polytheism, secularism, atheism. All kinds of different gods. But Christians might not claim any of those. We would say, we're not relativists. We believe there's one truth. We're not pluralists. We believe there's only one truth. We're not agnostics. We actually do know there is a God. We're not pantheists. We don't believe everything is God. We're not polytheists. There are not many, many gods. We're none of those things. But we still have false gods. What about this one? And I think this is the one that affects most Christians today. This is the God of liberalism. Now, don't panic, because I'm not talking about your political persuasion. Although there's certainly a lot to be said about political liberalism and how that's helped to destroy the fabric of our country. Now, this liberalism is actually the freedom to attack God. Uh, you might know it better as the freedom to correct God. I mean, after all, what do we have? We have an ancient book, don't we? We have an outdated book, don't we? We have a book that has lots of miscalculations, many mistakes, a lot of misinformation, and so what we really need to do is to fix the Bible. But before we do that, we've got to change God. We've got to fix Him because surely the Bible is wrong about His right to judge and condemn the things that we like to do. So we need to fix Him. 
And the best way that we can do it is to redefine him. Just make him something different. Make him the kind of God that really fits in with what we think God is. Now, I love this quote. I found it in two places. I, I found it from Dr. Ligon Duncan and also from uh, Phil Newton. And uh, I, I love this story. It, it's about Mark Dever. Mark Dever is the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And uh, some of you may remember, he, he's the same one that I talked to you about that a couple of years ago at the Shepherds Conference preached a message from Psalm 119 on the inerrancy of Scripture. And as his text, he began by reading all 176 verses of Psalm 119. You'd die if I did that here, but that's what he did. Well, Dever was, was teaching in a doctrinal seminar in seminary, and he relates a story of what happened, and he said, I had made a statement in a doctrinal seminar about God. Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think of God rather differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise but not meddling, compassionate but never overpowering, ever so respectful but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how he liked to think about God. And Dever replied, Thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself, but we're here today to study about God. Liberalism says we must redefine God, make him what we want him to be. Now, what is that? That's inventing a God who doesn't exist. That's putting that God in front of the true God and worshiping him. And I think that Dever had it right when he said, thank you for telling us about yourself. Because whenever you dethrone God, the only God left is you. Why? Because there aren't any other gods. There's no, there's, no, there's no idols that you can worship. Everything else is a false god. So if God's not God, then the only one it could be is you. And your ideas become your God. No other God but Jehovah God exists. And if you deny Him, that makes you God. And you certainly can't be God. You can't make God by redefining him. That's a violation of the first commandment. Now this struggle against false worship goes on and on. And the ways that we see it in Christianity and redefining God through liberalism is the attitude that people have towards, well, one of the examples would be the attitude that they have towards church programs. Church programs are less and less about God and more and more about us. The problem is described by Jesus in his rebuke of the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 3. He commended the church for good things that they did, but then he said, you've got a huge problem. And in verse number 4 of Revelation 2, he said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And you know what their first love was? It was Christ. See, the church is Christ. The church is about him. We can't be the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the church. He's first. He's always. He's the God of the church. And when the church lays down the Bible and the preacher begins to preach things like, well, we've got a way to make a better you, and he preaches about success and prosperity apart from total commitment to Christ, then that first love is lost. Now today, this is what the church is about. What can Christ do for you? Oh, oh, he's taught, it's taught this way, he can make a better life for you. Uh, he can give you a better job, or he can give you a better family, he can fix your marriage, and essentially what it comes out to is that Christ exists to serve us. The first commandment says that we exist 
to serve God. Now, as G. Campbell Morgan said, the first commandment brings you face to face with the object of worship. And the object of worship cannot be us. Now, ultimately, the preference of worship styles in the church is more about us than it is about God. Programs are for us, and what they've done is to replace the pure worship of God. Many times the first thing that people ask when they go to church, go to a new church, is, is not, how can I serve God here? Well, the first question is, what's the music like? Am I going to like the music? What about a children's program? Do you have a children's program? Are my kids going to like your children's program? Or what about a youth department? Do you have that? Is the, is the youth leader, is he rad? Yeah, Tabor's rad, all right, but that's besides the point. What if I said, there is no children's program. There is no youth department. You come here, we sing old-time hymns. Everybody... In church, sits in the auditorium, and they listen to the exposition of God's Word. We have one program. It's the preaching of God's Word. Well, some of you would start looking for another church. Some of the visitors that we have do exactly that. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. There's not enough excitement here. There's not enough jumping here. There's not enough hopping around. And, and there's no big band here. Never ask the question... Is it a place where I can serve God? It's always, what fits me? What about serving me? Exposition of Scripture is the way the church was done for centuries, but now classes have replaced Christ. And the Bible alone just doesn't cut it anymore. That's just not enough. Church has to be about us. We worship us and not God. As one quote in our local newspaper put it so aptly, I, I use this all the time because I, I, it just so well fits. A young lady visited another church in Santa Rosa. The newspaper interviewed her and she said, I love this church because it's not too religious. We've redefined God. We made God in our image. That's a serious violation of the first commandment. Now you might say, well that's not your problem. I don't have a problem with other gods. There, there aren't any statues in my home. Oh, I do believe that Jesus is the only God. You know, I found this very curious quote in my studies uh, about this first commandment. This person wrote, It would be a perversion of its obvious intention to denounce covetousness, social ambition, or excessive love of children. These are not the sins which this commandment was meant to forbid. I have to disagree with that statement. Because that tells us exactly, this statement tells us exactly what our problem is in worshiping false gods. These are exactly your problem many times. God knows what things that you will make other gods. It will be covetousness. It will be, or you will be, driven by success. Your career will become your God. Everything, everything will be sacrificed in order to get a better job in another location where there may not be a church that you can even worship God in spirit and truth. Spending God's money on status symbols like bigger homes and better cars, those become your God. Children can be your God. Their success might be your goal and your God. 
Some parents will leave Junior at home because Junior doesn't like to go to church. And so Junior is God. He rules the home, not God. The person who said that quote was wrong. This is exactly what God is talking about with the first command. Matthew Henry said, Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that whatever it is, is in effect an idol. These are the kinds of things that we put in front of God, and they become our God. And the real effect of that, in truth, is that we are our God. We're serving ourselves, not Jehovah. And so the greatest struggle of the Christian is to, is to overcome self in this quest to find out what God that we will serve. We want to walk with a culture and say that we are people of God, and that is not true. We are people of the people. We're a people of the culture. We're people of our own ideas of self. That is our God. Now, here's an interesting thought. It's the way that Paul put it in Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. He said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen very carefully to what he says next. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. What is our God? Our belly. By that he means our desires. Things that we want. This is what you would call replacement theology. We have put these things in the place of God and they become our God. You know what the Bible says right here? Paul said, these make you the enemy of the cross. You're not the friend of God when you have another God in front of him. You are an enemy of the cross. You have broken that first commandment. It is a violation of God's first commandment. Anything that you put in front of God. You see, you can't do it this way. You you, you can't obey the first commandment if there are other ways that you've chosen. Relativism, pluralism, liberalism, any of these other things. Absolute truth does exist. I am the Lord your God. That is the absolute truth. He is your God. He's first and He's only. He is God and He is God alone. God's not on the list. He is the list. You remember what Paul said in the book of Philippians? You want to know who God is? Who who is the God that's the only God? The one that perhaps you don't want to admit that is God? There in Philippians chapter 2, he tells us that every knee will be made to bow before this one who is the eternal God. Every knee will be made to bow. Whether you want to or not, one of these days you're going to acknowledge He is the Lord, your God. And if you want to identify who's speaking all the way back there in the book of Exodus, who is Jehovah God? His name is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ. That's who's speaking to us. And says, you can't have any other God before you. It must be me. And so when those prayers go up in the National Cathedral and they don't mention the name of Jesus Christ, they are turning their backs on the one true Almighty God. And Jesus says, all of you, one of these days is going to bow before me. 
And this means that for you who claim to be Christians and you have all these other things in your life, all these other things that have taken you out of the service of God, have taken you far and wide to do all the things that you want to do, you can come when you want, stay at home when you want, do what you want, be aware of this. One of these days you're going to stand before Almighty God and give an account. And He's going to ask you, who is your God? And by the way, that's a rhetorical question because He already knows. He knows what's in your heart. Is God your God? Ask yourself that question today. Do I have anything in my life that I put before God? Time will come when you'll have to answer that question to God. Now we're going to come back and discuss more of what it means to know God. That God is your God. You know there's a way that you can know that. You can put yourself to the test and... You can find out if God is your God. Oh, you may say that He is. You may claim your Christianity. You may say that He's your only God. How do you know that? I want you to think about that in this next week. We're going to talk about it next time. Can you defend the position of the first commandment in your life? Is there anything that you have before God? If you do, then He's not your only God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with this acknowledgement we must claim you as our God we must claim you as our only God even as we sit here today in this auditorium and we pray and we say that we're talking to the only God that we believe in and let yet we know that there's so many things that we're harboring in our hearts that we put in front these are things that are much more important for us to get done than it is to worship you and give our lives to you and actually understand that as Christians we're left in this world and live on this earth for one purpose and one purpose only, to glorify Jesus Christ. That's what life is. That's what life of a, the life of a Christian is. And we do know this, Lord, that you allow us to have other things in our lives. You give us good things. You provide for all the things that we have. And you do that because we are your children but we're never to take the things that you give us and make that the object of our affection. You'll take care of us, always take care of us. But we do need to understand you are our only God and give all praise, devotion, worship, all glory to you as God and God alone. Speak to our hearts today about this, Lord. Help us to examine our lives, see if there's anything there uh, that's in front of you. That is the very, very first commandment. If we don't get that right, we can't get any of the rest of these right. It's difficult, we know, but we can't get them right unless we know who you are. So, Lord, speak to our hearts today. Help us to confess our sins, to repent of all those things that we put in front of you. Lord, help us today to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.